close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Haraslin. I'm David Dahl. And we are back from hiatus to discuss a really, really good movie. <laughs> yeah. Just for a little refresher, this is the second movie in the 1943 nominees, Casablanca. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is actually one of my favorite movies of all time, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And I gotta say, it hits different in 2020. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely does. I'm sure I've seen it as a kid. It was one of those movies that was on TV a lot when I was a kid. And if you don't come in at the very beginning of it, you're like, the hell is happening? <laughs> and so I'm not sure if I've ever sat down and watched Casablanca start to finish. But also, you don't have to in that way of, oh, I know two thirds of the scenes from this movie. <laughs> having never seen it start to finish, you know? There's a lot of very famous lines, and I feel like those famous 10-second moments end up in a lot of other films. So you do get a good amount of it from other properties. Yeah. So the plot of this movie is... I feel torn about it. On the one hand, I'm like, how are we spoiling a movie that came out in 1942 and was nominated in 43? And on the other hand, I'm like, you should watch this movie if you haven't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's the thing I think I will say. Besides just watch this movie, because fucking yes, obviously, watch this movie. I feel like the core plot plot of this movie, everybody knows. But it's really only about that for like a fourth to a third of this movie. The plot of like... Humphrey Bogart plays Rick Blaine, a guy who owns a nightclub in Casablanca, crosses paths with an old flame who is in town with a Czech resistance leader who the Nazis are trying to catch and or kill before he can get to America and explain how much the Nazis fucking suck. Rick has uh, letters of transit out of Casablanca, but he also has feelings for his old flame. Those two things are in conflict to provide a sort of moral quandary for him of Will he sacrifice for something bigger than himself, or will he let his anger and bitterness at how the world has fucked him over because of fascism win out? And spoiler alert, he does the right thing, shoots a Nazi, lets his love go, and says all of the fucking famous lines at the airport everyone knows from this movie. And then he and the local corrupt chief of police go off to kill a bunch of Nazis together. The local corrupt French chief played by Claude Rains, who <laughs> I had really forgotten how good he is in this movie. Everyone's so good in this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the thing about this movie that I don't think I've ever realized, because you hear people go, this wasn't supposed to be best picture, you know? This was organized to be not quite a, like, fly-by-night operation, but a, like, we gotta put out a movie. Let's grab some people, take this stage play, make it a movie. It'll be pretty good. Bogart's pretty good. It'll be fine. And instead, it's this minor miracle of a fantastic fucking movie. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is that. While I was watching it, I kept thinking that it is the culmination of a lot of things that we've talked about positively on this podcast in one film. You have the Capra quality of 
everybody in it, no matter how small their part, is a fully fleshed out person. God, that tracking shot when you first go to Rex. Oh, and it's total Capra. And it goes across like six, seven tables where they're speaking three or four different languages. And you just have all these little vignettes of how all these different people are managing their life in Casablanca or trying to make it out. And you're like, I want to see a movie about every fucking one of these people. Everyone! And then you've got the cinematography that, I mean, it's not the same cinematographer, but you have the level of black and white, incredible lighting cinematography that you would have in Citizen Kane, though it's Arthur Edison who did Maltese Falcon and Frankenstein, which we've also reviewed on the podcast. The acting is incredible. I think it's Claude Rains in his finest performance that we've seen. The direction is very, very good and is Michael Curtis, who did the Robin Hood film that we watched and it's giving him something where the people are realer. <laughs> yeah. He really did something with that. I don't know. I had this conflicting feeling. There's this level where the direction is so good you're not quite sure where the director's hand is at work and where it's not. After Ugart, the character who's played by Peter Lorre, gets shot in the middle of the place in this huge disturbance, and Humphrey Bogart goes like, everybody calm down, party's still on, it's all okay. There's this small moment where Bogart just finds an aperitif glass on a table and tips it back up. And keeps walking. Like that fucking fixed everything. And yet somehow it kind of did because he's fucking Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Where it's like, was that improvised? Was that found on the day? Was that in the script? Was that something the director told him to do? And this movie is just filled with moments like that. Where there's just these little pitch perfect performance moments where you're like, is that the director? Is that the actor? Is that the script? I don't know. It's just a minor miracle that that happened because it's perfect. I mean, that one in particular, I would say was probably Bogart because Here's Looking at You, Kid, is credited to his improvisation. And that's the kind of thing where he's adding in these little human details to Rick that are so wonderful but everybody's doing it, so is it just that they got the best cast ever? Which is possible, because a number of the actors who worked on this film, including background people, but a number of the actors who are secondary or tertiary characters, were themselves immigrants who had fled from the Nazis. So there was a lot of passion in that room. I thought you were going to say the other thing which is true about you get down low on the cast list, and this is because of... You know, hell year. I've been watching a lot of pretty chill movies besides this one during our sort of hiatus. And as a result, one of the movies I was rewatching was Clueless. And that is a movie where just everybody down to like the 18th build person becomes a huge movie star for the rest of their fucking life because they were in Clueless. Well, and that's also a great film. Yeah. Though not nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> no, and really it's more just that this is a movie where you think of so many people in it as being a ringer and then you sort of look at their careers and realize, oh, they become ringers because of Casablanca. I mean, like, not Bogart, not like the really high-billed people. A lot of this cast is kind of a Maltese Falcon reunion. Yeah, that's true. But there are a lot of people where you go, oh, this was their first big role. 
And then they really were doing stuff for the next like 15, 20 years because you put Casablanca down on your resume and people go, oh, okay. (laughs) Ingrid Bergman, for example, had done some films in Hollywood, but this is the one that really made her a star. Claude Rains was already super famous. Peter Lorre was not yet super famous, though he had been in Maltese Falcon. I mean, there's a lot of really good people in this film, and it is really a question of, is it the director or is it the casting director who made this film incredible? (laughs) Or is it, you know, there's this thing I always talk about, I can never find the quote. Of like a guy who made TV in the 80s was saying, you got a 22 episode season, three of the episodes you do are going to work great no matter what you do. And three of the episodes you do are going to be garbage no matter what you do. And the question is, what do you do with the other 16 episodes? And this feels like one of those movies where the foundation was solid, but it feels like saying, I don't know, I could write a sequel to Hamlet, it'd probably be better. But it's not like this is the most rock-solid script in the history of the world in several ways. I'm not sure you really need the flashback, for instance. The ending is a little tidy. There are things where if you didn't have the actors you have here, I think you could point to it and go, eh, there's some work to be done on this script. But it all fucking works because it's Casablanca. (laughs) There are things that are brilliant works of art because they are just fucking built like a steel trap. They're just absolutely constructed perfectly. And then there's works of genius that are like a Jenga tower that's always about to fall over that you feel like, how could this possibly keep working this well? And Casablanca kind of feels like that, like, okay, but like eventually you're going to get tired of this or you can't just keep this tone going the entire time. What is this movie even? Like, how long can you just really stare at Humphrey Bogart just looking upset about everything? And the answer is, I don't know, fucking forever, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I get what you're saying. I don't know that I entirely agree. I mean, it's not the tightest script that's ever been written, but it's hard to say because so much of what is beautiful about this film is the dialogue and not necessarily the plot. Exactly. I was I was just about to say the dialogue of this movie is amazing. Yeah. The structure of it, I could be a structure nerd about. But also, how fucking pedantic do you have to be to nitpick Casablanca? I mean, that's what we do, though. <laughs> that's, yeah, me especially. But I know myself, Susan. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> But I do particularly disagree, though, about the flashback scenes not being necessary or the flashback scene where Rick and Ilsa are falling in love in Paris. And the reason for that is, my God, how did they make Humphrey Bogart's eye bags go away? He looks 15 years younger and you know that it's been two years because they give you the dates. That alone for me, I think, was really valuable because it demonstrated how much he has aged in this time and that as much as he tries to be very cool and very detached, the combination of losing Ilsa and having to deal with the creeping fascist menace has been pretty destructive to this person. I came around on the flashback, certainly by the end of it, and I really don't want to go like, it's garbage and a better movie would cut it out, because I don't think it's that simple. But there is something about how you actually learn everything you need to know from that flashback 
from the As Time Goes By scene, from Ilsa asking Sam to play the song, and the way they both react to it. Mm. You know everything you fucking need to know about their relationship, and that scene is so amazing. (laughs) Um, That it almost disappointed me when they went back and went, okay, so here's what happened. Because I was like, I don't fucking need to know. Rick keeps saying I don't need to know, and I'm I'm with my man Rick. Like I like I. <laughs> I mean, I I there is an argument for what you're saying, absolutely. But I also would not go to the mat to cut the fucking flashbacks because, like you say, he looks amazing in it. There's a lot of amazing stuff in it. It's not like boy, what a waste of ten minutes or anything. It's just that in a lesser movie where I'm not looking at Bogart and Bergman. Mm, unnecessary to the plot. Maybe just keep it at a tight 90 minutes. But because I'm looking at them, I don't actually fucking care what this is. The flashback could be both of them going to the moon. (laughs) And I would be like, you know what? I'm fine with it. I actually want to see the movie where Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman go to the moon. (laughs) I would watch the shit out of that movie. So obviously our main characters are phenomenal, but what to me really jumped out in this rewatch of it are the little, they're not exactly subplots even, they're like little vignettes of things that are happening that Rick is tangentially involved with because his bar is the center of the Casablanca universe. Yeah. I really want to talk about those because there was just some great acting and some really smart work that was done there. Claude Rains is even a little bit above this level, though I do want to give just a huge shout out for him as Renault because he is walking a very, very fine line and he is pulling it off of being totally corrupt, doesn't really have any morals. Vichy, free France, who cares? Whichever one it is, I'm going to be on their side because I'm not going to get myself into trouble. And he's also clearly exploiting people for sexual favors in order to get them travel visas. Like, he's kind of a shitbag. He's also incredibly charming. Yeah, he's incredibly charming and he's the devil you know. Mm, Yeah. And does such a good job being like, yeah, I'm a shitbag, but any other shitbag you get, you're not going to know what you're getting. So aren't you better off with me? And everybody just kind of goes, yeah. (laughs) And he just says it to everybody's face. I mean, there is a reason, you know, I'm shocked, shocked to find there's gambling going on in this establishment. He has so many good lines that are just, I am out and out corrupt and every other option available to you is worse than me. Oh, but you have to add the punchline for that. Uh, Yes. He says it totally flat. I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling in this establishment. (laughs) And then the croupier comes over and says, you're winning, sir. And he just says, thank you, very politely, and puts them in his pocket. As if these things are not completely in conflict. Yeah. Fun fact, the croupier for the bar is Marcel Dalio, who was the Jewish officer in Grand Illusion. That whole section, really, whenever they become a big thing. Um, which is kind of the middle third of the movie, has real Grand Illusion vibes in the way that, like, these huge apocalyptic events are always incredibly personal and small and kind of ridiculous. I mean, I am thinking specifically of the shocked, shocked to find there's gambling going on in this establishment scene where Victor Laszlo, the escaped concentration camp guy who's got to get out of Casablanca and is married to Rick Sachs, 
comes down, sees a bunch of German officers singing the Watch on the Rhine, and then orders the house band to play Marseillaise. <laughs> and the two bands just start playing louder and louder, attempting to play over each other. Had big Grand Illusion vibes to me. <laughs> I mean, we talked about this in the Grand Illusion episode, that this is so obviously inspired by that scene in Grand Illusion. Mm-hmm. But the passion of it feels a bit different than it did in Grand Illusion. And I think a big part of that is that you have so many actors who are involved in that scene who have already fled the Nazis. And when everybody in the bar stands up and starts singing it, it feels more dangerous than it did in Grand Illusion. It was like, well, they're in a POW camp and they're singing La Marseillaise, but what's really going to happen to them? Because World War I German soldiers were very different from World War II SS and occupying soldiers. I think that's true. And I also think it feels different because in Grand Illusion, you're kind of inside of that conflict, right? Like you are with the French officers as your point of view character. And so you sort of feel like you sort of have a dog in that fight. Whereas, I mean, obviously you're not like yay Nazis, but you're with Rick and Rick is kind of standing to the side and just watching all of this happen and going, God, this just is not going to fucking end well. He gives a nod that he's okay with it. Yeah, he's not full on like, no, stop, stop, stop. He doesn't sing along. Exactly. (laughs) But he's like, yeah, what the hell? Do the thing. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's a different energy. Watching a conflict, even a conflict you support one side in, versus the sort of rousing feeling of being inside the conflict, weirdly, of like, I've picked a side, I'm doing a thing, something's happening here. It's much more dangerous, but it weirdly feels less dangerous as an audience member. Versus looking at a situation that's gonna go wrong and you know it. The cinematography really bears that out too, because we get to see the back of the band, we get to see Laszlo, then we see the woman who's the guitar player and the singer in the band. But it's much more of a crowd shot than spending moments on specific characters we're very attached to, which they do in Grand Illusion. Mm -hmm. The scene before, I'm shocked to find gambling in this. Is one of the ones, though, that for me was actually quite moving this time that I hadn't even really noticed it. And I've seen this movie a few times, but where the Bulgarian girl, really, he says that she's underage, comes to him and says that she's trying to get the letters that they know pretty much everybody in Casablanca thinks or knows that he has because they have to get out and uh, basically offers herself to Rick. And he's like, no, I'm not. No. What about your husband? Because she does say that she's married. And she says, oh, well, he's in the back playing roulette to try to win money for us to leave. And he goes back to the casino part of the bar, tells him what to bet on, looks at the croupier. Then, of course, he makes a lot of money because the roulette magically works out for him and then tells him to put it all on it again. He wins and then says, "Okay, cash out, take this with you and get out of Casablanca. And he does it all very coolly. He's not trying for attention. He's not trying for a thank you. It's just the kind of thing where, and Bogart plays this so well, he is a sentimentalist, as Renault calls him. He just 
thinks he's not. I think there's two other like vital parts of that little subplot that jumped out to me. One is, I mean, she is throwing herself at Rick because it's a better option, but she also makes pretty clear that her other way out is to sleep with Claude Rains, to sleep with Renault. Right. This is an example of another thing we've talked about really good movies from this era having to do, which is using the code to your advantage. That the way she talks around what she's going to do is, in fact, more interesting than if she just said, Renal's only going to give me the papers if I sleep with him. And one of the ways it's way more interesting is that it makes her situation feel much more directly analogous to the situation Rick is in with Ilsa than it actually is. Right. She sort of talks around it as like, if you were in love with someone and they did a thing, but you knew that they did it for you, could you ever forgive them? And he storms out. And you think he storms out because, I mean, he does storm out because he's thinking of Ilsa. But you think that that means his hardened heart has won. He is not going to fucking help somebody in need because the world has broken him so thoroughly. And then he goes and does everything Susan said. Doesn't she say they wouldn't need to know you'd never tell them? Could you live with yourself if you did that? Yeah. Not would they forgive you? Because let's be real. I feel like Laszlo is a pretty open-minded dude and would probably be like, I mean, eh. Which I think is part of the reason why at the end Rick makes it very clear, even though none of this has ever come up. He says, she came to me last night at Just Want You To Know and she pretended to still be in love with me to try to get these from me for you. And that's not what happened. No. The the other thing that's weird about that scene, besides the fact that Laszlo in an earlier scene does basically go, hey, were you lonely when you thought I was dead? Because I would. And she's like, nope, everything was fine. Everything was fine. Yeah, I was really lonely, but I definitely did not sleep with anyone else or even talk to anyone else ever. Did not meet anyone in Paris who looks exactly like fucking Humphrey Bogart. So you don't got to worry about nothing. And... You even get the sense in that last scene that Laszlo knows what he's saying is bullshit and is like, yeah, that's a fiction I'll live with. That's great. Thanks. Let's get on the plane. You're a stand up guy. You know, it's the doesn't amount to a hill of beans thing, which is yet another one of those lines that like through the years has become kind of stupid in its cliche-ness and how often people say it as a joke or as an homage. But the thing that gives that scene some pathos is when you watch the whole movie, how small all of their romantic triangle bullshit feels in the face of everything else. That it really does kind of feel like, of course it's huge to them, every apocalypse is personal. But yeah, they're all just telling themselves the stories they got to tell themselves to get through the day. Right, exactly. Another one of the really nice little moments for me, well, a lot of the moments with Carl... The waiter, mm-hmm. who is played by Essie Salkal, who is a Jewish-Hungarian actor who fled Germany in 1939, and many members of his family died in a concentration camp. So, like, he's really here for the anti-Nazi stuff, I'm sure. And yet is playing a very light-hearted character. Uh, but there is a moment where he goes to sit down with 
this late 50s, early 60s German couple who have finally decided that they're going to leave. They're going to go to America and they're practicing their English and only speaking in English. And they have a really cute exchange where she says, what watch is it? And he says, oh, it's 10 watch. And she says, oh, what watch? Meaning like it's 10 o'clock. But they ask him to have a drink with them because it's going to be their last night there. And he says, I thought that you would say that, so I brought the good brandy. Mm -hmm. Oh, and a glass for me, and takes it out of his jacket pocket (laughs) and sits down with them. And it's just so charming, because he's such a total character, and he's a waiter. Like, you could have thrown him away. (laughs) Not only does he have that scene, there's also a beautiful little scene after Rick does the roulette. I mean, I guess con, but he's conning himself to let the refugee couple get out of Casablanca, where he is so clearly delighted in what his boss has done. He's so clearly delighted with Rick and is having this fight between like, you don't want to make it too obvious, but you also want to go like, hey, I'm really proud of you. That was really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that great thing. And when Laszlo is being chased out of a resistance meeting back into Rick's place, He's the one who was at the resistance meeting. And there's this great little moment where they're turning off the lights for the night and shutting the place down where he goes, I'm going to the and Rick just cuts him off and goes, don't tell me where you're going, which both tells you exactly where he's going and that Rick knows exactly where fucking everyone is all the time. Like he he knows where everyone in the resistance is right all the fucking time. Yeah. Um, And his job is not to know in quotes. It's not even that he could just be a one-off character and he has this internal life. It's that his internal life informs the rest of the film, gives you a sense of this place. Yeah. And then Sam. We haven't talked about Sam. (sighs) Uh, Yeah, Dooley Wilson. I I mean, it's a little complicated. It's still 1943 in Hollywood. Sam could maybe use a little more agency. (laughs) But he is the fucking emotional core of this movie and given a lot to do. So in relative 1943 terms, holy shit. And he is allowed to push back. There are some good little moments that are pushing against some of those stereotypes, not the least of which is when the guy from the other cafe, the Blue Parrot, comes and offers to buy Sam. And Rick says... I'm not in the business of buying and selling people. God, that's the response is so great to that, too. Sydney Greenstreet, just without missing a beat, goes, that's a shame. It's one of Casablanca's most prized commodities. Well, and that is the first time that we hear Rick say that he's not a good businessman, which he says a number of times, despite the fact that he obviously has the most successful expat cafe in the whole city. Yeah. Though he does then go to the Blue Parrot at the end when he thinks that he's going to be leaving and talks to Sydney Greenstreet's character whose name is something. Senor Ferrari. Senor Ferrari, right. Which I just am like, oh yeah, it's that guy from Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Because I just think of it as being exactly the same guy from Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) This is just a continuum. And tells him that Sam gets 25% of the profits. Mm -hmm. And Ferrari says, we both know that he gets 10, but you're right, he's worth it. (laughs) Yeah. So just, you know, negotiating his contract on his behalf. One, yes, it is taking away his agency, but 
Two, it's also negotiating for him to get more money and to be treated well. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. Yeah. And then he doesn't end up going anyway, so... Right, but I mean, I, I don't know, it's implied at the end he's still leaving Casablanca. He's just leaving via a different route with Claude Rains, with Renault. Right. I always want to not call him Claude Rains, and then I just give up. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to make too big of a thing of it. The thing that is kind of weird about it is just this assumption that Sam will follow Rick around, both in the flashback and in the present day stuff. You don't really know what got him that level of loyalty, you know, in a way that feels a little bit creepy. But that loyalty is rewarded. They have, when they're alone together, a very sweet and interesting relationship that has shades to it and doesn't feel like he's just the house servant or something like that. But there is just this implication of like, oh yeah, Rick gets to negotiate on behalf of Sam. When Rick decides to flee the country, Sam is obviously coming with him. That kind of stuff. I mean, if the Nazis are rolling up into Paris and you're a black man, I think you would probably want to go with the guy who's leaving. Oh yeah, no. I Again, none of the stuff individually derails it. This is nowhere near the most racist portrayal of a black man we've watched. It is pretty close to the least racist one we've ever watched. It's just like if you were making Casablanca in 2020, which God Hollywood don't. Please fucking don't. don't. But if you were, you'd do some different shit with Sam. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I feel that. And I agree. If you want to make a Casablanca related film, give me the movie about how Sam and Rick meet and develop that relationship. Oh, we're not even getting to all of the sets in this movie that Nikki turned to me after like 15 minutes because we've been watching a lot of old Spielberg with just like, so Spielberg just had this movie tattooed on the inside of his eyelids, huh? <laughs> there's a lot of Raiders of the Lost Ark in this For film. For sure. Or there's a lot of this film <laughs> in Raiders of the Lost Ark, to be more accurate. Oh, the costumes are absolutely incredible. God, yeah. I mean, there's like four actors we've said this about, but nobody wears a tux like Bogart. No, no, nobody. <laughs> he looks so comfortable in it. Yeah, God. He wears a tux like it feels like sweatpants to him. Mm -hmm. And it kind of has like that sort of rumpledish feeling as well. This is what I rolled out of bed in. <laughs> it shifts so effortlessly through genres what is the genre of this movie? Romantic heist war film? Slash, you know, noir. It is absolutely noir in so many qualities. Right. While being a little bit more important than most noir films are. Yeah. Usually you're fighting a bad guy who wants to steal a Maltese Falcon, and this is you're fighting the literal Nazis. Right. You know. But the sort of thing I wanted to say about that negotiation with Sidney Greenstreet is that it is deep into that territory of a thing I love, which is a con where everybody wins. Like Rick has set everything up so that everybody gets through it okay, except the Nazis. Fuck the Nazis. But everybody... Yeah, but we're fine with that. <laughs> but everybody else gets a happy ending. That it is so carefully set up. I mean, you know, because you know the end of this movie that he's not going to go through with it. But it is set up as like, everybody gets what they want, except Laszlo. Laszlo's going to be the one that gets screwed. No, it's not. It's Bogart. It's Casablanca. He's going to do the right thing in the end. But that's clearly what the plot is attempting to hide. I mean, literally what he actually says is, 
the plan is he and Ilsa are gonna end up together. And just abandon Laszlo at the airport. Yeah. To Renault. <laughs> yeah, he says that to Renault, and what he says to Ilsa is, you're gonna stay with me, but Laszlo's gonna get on the plane alone. And that's the price of Laszlo getting on the plane. No, he says that he and Ilsa are gonna get out. No, not to Ilsa, because Ilsa wouldn't- Oh yeah, no, he says that to Renault. Yeah, he says that to Renault, but to Ilsa he says- You and me are staying in Casablanca, and that's the ticket price for Laszlo. And then they get to the airport, and he does the maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow speech, and what actually happens, happens. But there's a 15-minute stretch there where he sets up the con, and it's fucking great. Like everything in this movie. It's really good. I'm gonna give it a 10. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a 10. There is stuff I could quibble with on paper. This is not a perfect movie, but in practice, it's a perfect movie. Things that shouldn't work, work, and things that you would never think to put in this movie just make it transcendent. And it's fucking Casablanca. It's a film that I'm confident saying nine movies out from the end of the year should have won Best Picture. Yeah. And it did. We have eight more movies to watch. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard to beat. Maybe I will eat my words. I don't know. Crazier things have happened in the world, but like, nah, <laughs> like, come on. This is sort of famously one of the the Oscars picked right movies that like once every decade. Yeah, that's true. You know, every couple of years, the Oscars pick right just because a studio made a movie and was like, this is going to win the Oscar. Give it the fucking Oscar. And then the Oscars do. And everyone goes like, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. And like once every one or two decades, there's a movie like Casablanca where Nobody thought it was going to be film of the year. It was not set up to be that. And the Oscars just picked it anyway because it's so undeniable. Right. Just how could, like, it's fucking Casablanca. So obviously watch this movie. You. And for next week, I think we're facing a letdown from the high of this week. I'm just going to throw that out there. Because we are watching the human comedy starring a teen or late childhood Mickey Rooney. Yeah. Starring a Mickey Rooney comet falling to earth, judging by the fucking poster with his just bizarre, just very strange poster. Yeah. I mean, the poster is terrible, so there is a 50-50 shot that it could be a good movie, but woof. Yeah, I feel like it's not going to be Casablanca. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, So tune in next week to find out if this is any good. Yeah. And until then. God, this was a movie. Yeah, it was. (laughs) 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 Goodbye, everybody. Bye. It might be a good idea for you to disappear from Casablanca for a while. There's a free French garrison over at Brazzaville. I could be induced to arrange a passage. My letter of transit? I could use a trip. But it doesn't make any difference about our bet. You still owe me 10,000 francs. And that 10,000 francs should pay our expenses. Our expenses? Mm-hmm. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Mm-hmm.